Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. So good to be back in the beautiful Ain't It Scary studio. Uh, Caroline, I'm looking at the title of the episode for this week, and I've never heard of the Sodder children, but I can only imagine they are a... I don't know, like a lackluster rival to the Little Rascals, an R-Gang kind of thing. Maybe a welding family. A welding family could be a a villain for the Powerpuff Girls. (laughs) No. So, Sean, Christmas time may not be here anymore, but that doesn't mean the holiday horrors are over. Christmas time is here. Those mournful children. Those are the horrors you're referring to. (laughs) Yes. I landed on this topic after the new year, but it's very much a wintertime mystery, and it felt perfect for the dog days of January. So today, Sean, we're talking about the curious case of the Sodder children. Now, the story begins at an end with a billboard. Three of them outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I was going to (laughs) say. Just just the one. I've seen this movie. It stars Francis McDormand. (laughs) You've seen this movie? Three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. Yes. I've seen that movie. Oh. I don't think I've ever met anyone who had actually seen it. Really? Yeah. Oh, it's good. Sam, okay. Sam Rockwell, Francis McDormand. He does Rockwell. Yeah. He, oh, he rocks hard. Th- this is that? No. Oh. This is one billboard outside <laughs> Fayetteville, West Virginia. Okay. You really, you really <laughs> took me for a ride there. <laughs> for nearly 40 years, a solemn billboard stared down the drivers taking Route 16 near Fayetteville, West Virginia. On the billboard were stark black and white portrait photos of five children with their names beneath each. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty Sodder, S-O-D-D-R. Short paragraphs with their ages, 14, 12, 9, 8, and 5, and certain distinguishing details were listed underneath. For years, anyone on Route 16 would see a tragic plea. After 30 years, it is not too late to investigate. That was the headline of what, the billboard. Paid for by the family? Yes. This is, That is three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Well, this is one billboard outside Fayetteville, West Virginia. Beneath that headline and above a wall of text were pictures of five children. Now, each of these children honestly look like they could be my cousins. Okay, they're all dark haired, likely olive skinned, despite the black and white pictures, dark eyed and with prominent dark eyebrows. Yeah, that accurate description. Mm -hmm. Now, several of them stare right at the camera and it's almost like their dark eyes hold the answers for their mysterious vanishing. But the subjects of the portraits did not tell any of their secrets and just remained on a billboard as a disturbing reminder of a family tragedy for decades until the billboard finally came down in 1989. And this was not because the mystery was finally solved, but because both Sauter parents had finally passed away. So they kept on paying for the rent on the billboard. For 40 years. Wow. So uh, what was the story behind this haunting billboard, you may ask, Sean? I guess you have to repaint it every now and then to update the total on blank years is, is not too And they long. did. And they, they changed the reward and stuff, too. I have to... You have to feel for that family. But 30 years is too long. 
you know, to investigate. Well, a when you'll when you'll case. when you hear the story of what they went through, maybe you'll understand. The billboard came down on 19 in 1989, but the story actually begins on Christmas Eve 1945, soon after end of World War II in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Woohoo! Bring our boys home. Mm-hmm. Now Fayetteville was a tiny town. It had a main street no longer than a hundred yards. The agreed upon details of the solder disappearances are very slim, but they went something like this. On December 24th, 1945, the Sodder family was gathered in their two-story timber frame house two miles north of Fayetteville Center. The patriarch of the family was George Sodder, born Giorgio Sadu in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. Got changed at Ellis Island or whatever? Yeah, something like that. Uh, George immigrated to the United States at age 13 with his older brother, um, but his brother actually just returned immediately to Italy after seeing George clear customs at Ellis Island, and he was kind of sent on alone. And George would never really talk about why he left Italy, why he left so young, and why he was alone. I mean, he maybe didn't want to change his name. So his brother getting his name changed up, and he said, no. No. Who's making that journey and then turning around and going home? I think he just did it as kind of an escort, saw that he made it, and was like, all right, I'm out of here. I don't know why his brother didn't stay with him. Yeah, everything I understand about mid-Atlantic travel in that time, uh, that's, that's a hell of a brother. Yeah. So eventually, George found work on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies to workers. He proceeded to take on more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. Yes, Smithers. <laughs> and started his own trucking company, initially created to haul fill dirt to construction sites, and later uh, it started to haul the coal that was mined locally. George met and married Jenny Cipriani, a storekeeper's daughter in town who had also emigrated from Italy as a child. And here we go. This is a of the beginnings of a beautiful Italian familia. Yeah, and a, a, a made in America story, an American success story, an American dream story. An American love story at the very least. George and Jenny settled in Fayetteville nearby, which happened to have a large population of Italian immigrants. They had the first of their 10 children. 10. Yep. 10 kids and counting. Yeah. In 1923, this was John, and they continued on with Joseph, Marion, George Jr., Martha, Louis, Jenny, Betty, and finally little Sylvia in 1943. All of them were uh, currently living at home with the Sauter parents. John was the oldest at only 22, so this is not too crazy. George's hauling business did well, with the Sauters becoming one of the most respected middle-class families around, in the words of one local official. But George could be... Well, in their eyes, the current phrase would be politically problematic. And this was in their opinion, uh, the Fayetteville majority. George had a lot of strong opinions. He was a real hot takesman. Okay, what were his what, what were his politics? Well, the thing is, I don't think looking back on it, it's bad. But apparently, at the time, this was very, very controversial. He had a public and proud opposition to Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Uh, who many of the local immigrant community apparently admired and praised. But George disagreed, 
Uh, we know now that he was in the right, but that was not the prevailing opinion of his peers. This is still in the 30s? This is into the 40s. Now, Joseph, 21, uh, he was the second eldest solder, left home by the time of Sylvia's birth in 1942 to serve in the military during World War II. The, the American one, right? Yes, yes. You didn't, you didn't go to the Italian, uh, the, the Mussolini. No, but the, the following year, Mussolini would be dis- deposed and executed in the course of the war. Despite uh, Mussolini's rather definitive defeat, George was still resented by many of his peers for expressing his anti-Mussolini beliefs. And I'm pretty sure he likely did some gloating when the guy that he had proclaimed to be evil got his just desserts. You know, a lot of I told you so's. Right. They're like, Italy just got its ass kicked in the World Cup. You don't, you you know, a good Italian doesn't cheer. That's what they're saying. Even though you're Americans now, you know, different side. Right. Um. Maybe if he had ever discussed what had happened back in Italy to make him flee, he would have been met with more empathy. But despite readily expressing his opinion on just about everything, he was very reticent to ever mention his youth in his homeland. By fall of 1945, things were going fairly well for the Sodders. But the first strange thing happened, that part of the horror movie where the protagonists get an ominous warning from a mysterious stranger. Uh-huh. Except this is real life, and it really did happen that way. In October of that year, a traveling life insurance salesman stopped at the Sodder home, and when the salesman was rejected, as I'm sure most roaming salesmen of the time were, the man became absolutely furious. Uh, he yelled at George that your goddamn house is going up in smoke. And your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Now, can I show you this Kirby one more time? Which is, it's funny that he didn't bring this up until after he was rejected. Like, he's fine with the guy if he thinks he can still get his business. Right. It's almost like until that point, he didn't hint that he even knew him. He's just a traveling salesman. Mm -hmm. But he knows about his thoughts about Mussolini. So it seems like he's a local. His controversial anti-fascism stance. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Around this time, another visitor to the Sodder home performed some kind of physical inspection on the house. It seemed like this was another either traveling workman or maybe someone looking for some work. Uh, So he's sort of doing freelance maintenance inspections uh, on spec like did the family hire it's the him to 40s do this? you know people are running around train lines and things he's just hoping to find something he can fix that they yeah, will pay him i for? think so he went around back of the home and he pointed out a pair of fuse boxes to warn that they could cause a fire someday this puzzled george because the house was fairly newly rewired because they had just had an electric stove installed and they had someone out to inspect all the wiring make sure everything was good and the electric company had proclaimed it safe in the weeks before christmas the older solder sons send, said they began noticing a strange car parked along the main highway through town us highway 21 Uh, And this to them was an obvious stranger because everyone knew everyone in Fayetteville. And that means, you know, everyone's car because people had even less cars nowadays. You probably had like one per household if you even had one. I just want to put a pin in this thought. If this ends up connecting with what, you know, what I assume is the disappearance later. um, 
You know, it's weird that it would be someone from outside of town. How's that person getting rubbed raw by this guy's political opinions? I don't know. But the sons did state that the occupants would watch the younger Sauter children as they returned home from school. On Christmas Eve 1945, the family gathered to celebrate the holiday. Marion, the eldest daughter at 19, had been working at a job at a Fayetteville uh, dime store, and she was kind of rolling in it. She surprised three of the younger children, Martha, 12, Jenny Jr., 8, and Betty, 5, with new toys she had purchased from the store as gifts for them. So this was very exciting. Wow, not even Christmas or birthday gifts, just... These are Christmas gifts. Oh, sorry. This is Christmas. Yes, Christmas Eve. The younger Sauter kids were so excited by the new toys that they asked their mother um, if they could stay up past what I assume would have been their bedtime at 10 p.m. So they just want to play with their new toys. Yeah, but she's got to get the fucking shit set up for tomorrow morning. (laughs) Well, the elder Jenny Sauter, I'm sure with a very permissive smile on her face like the mom from A Christmas Story, let them enjoy their toys a little while longer. Jenny told the kids they could stay up as long as 14-year-old Maurice and 9-year-old Lewis were still awake to look after them and also put the cows in and feed the chickens before heading to bed themselves. So George and his sons John and George Jr. had spent the day working, so they were already asleep. So after reminding the remaining children that were awake to do their chores, Mrs. Sauter took little Sylvia upstairs with her and went to bed. And this is where things go very, very strange. I just, I've never lived a rural life, and I've obviously only lived in the 20th century. It's just so interesting to be like, you're five. Go make sure you feed the the large beasts in our uh, in Nine our and, and 14, but yes. Um, well, I think kids had a lot, a lot of different responsibilities, and certainly in West Virginia at this time. Yeah, I'm not even saying that it's bad. It's just no, interesting. It's, it's different. No one yeah. is asking me to feed any... Uh, you, you could know, barely feed the cat. Large beasts. <laughs> the cat ate very well. That was a fat cat. <laughs> At about 12.30 a.m. early Christmas morning, Mrs. Sauter woke up to the sound of a telephone ringing downstairs. They only had the one. So she went to answer it. And on the other line was a woman's voice who she did not recognize. In the background was the sound of laughter and clinking glasses, almost as if this woman was at a really late party. The woman asked Jenny for someone with a name she wasn't familiar with. I couldn't find what the actual name was. And Jenny responded that the caller had received a wrong number and remarked later that the caller, uh, the woman who had called, had a really weird laugh in response. Okay. Enough for her to remark about it. Okay. But, But the conversation had been about, like, stuff. It wasn't a weird... Well, the woman said, hey, is Jim there? And she's like, no, you have a wrong number. And then the woman goes, ha, <laughs> Yeah. As a prelude to an attack, it's weird. Yeah. Continue. Jenny hung up the phone and headed back to bed. Marion, the eldest daughter, had fallen asleep on the living room couch. So Jenny assumed the other solder kids went up to the attic to sleep, which is where their room was. She closed the curtains and turned out the lights, which she noted was unusual because part of the chores that she had left with the kids was to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, it's Christmas Eve, so (laughs) she just does it herself and goes back to sleep. Soon after 1 a.m., Jenny was again woken up by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then like a rolling noise. It's Santa Claus. After hearing nothing else, or perhaps thinking Santa had just a few too many eggnogs to steer straight, 
Jenny went back to sleep. Well, you got to wake up. If he falls off the roof, <laughs> then you're going to need to put on his suit and well, then meet David Crumholtz at the North Pole. Well, she would be the Mrs. Claus, you know, as this is a very heteronormative set of mythology we have. It, uh, if I may, Carrie, I think the card in the movie just says whoever puts on this suit. Okay, but you have to be a lesbian because it's specified it's a Mrs. Claus. Yeah, you are now. <laughs> you're Santa Claus. You can listen. Anyway, I'm sure absolutely miffed at this point of being woken up so many times. She woke up again at 1.30 a.m., but she smelled smoke. So she got out of bed for a second time to check on the smell of smoke and found that the room George used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny woke George in a panic, and he in turn woke the eldest solder sons. So parents Jenny and George, along with eldest daughter Marion, youngest child Sylvia, and eldest present sons John and George Jr., then escaped the house. When George realized the other children must still be inside, there's five of them, Mm -hmm. he went to a barrel the family had full of water to try and fill buckets with the water to start dousing the flames. However, the water was frozen solid. The outdoors sodders screamed to the children upstairs frantically, but received no response. They didn't hear any screams, anything, you know, from the attic. There was no way to get up there uh, because the stairway to the attic was now in flames. Mm. Now, the details even here diverged after the event. John, who was the oldest son present, said um, in his first police interview that the fire that after the fire had started, he had actually gone up to the actual attic room to alert the solder children sleeping up there. But he later later changed his story to say that he had only called up there and didn't actually see them. So it's kind of like a top of the stairwell versus bottom of the stairwell sort of thing. Do you know how in a, I mean, just to give him the benefit of the, benefit of the doubt in that situation, you know, in a really really bad situation where you know things are bad, you're hoping they're not as bad as they could be, you're hoping you didn't fuck anything up, mm-hmm. and you're hoping if you did fuck anything up, no one's going to know, mm-hmm. um, you might just, even if you even if what you did was go in the direction of the attic stairs and yell the kids' names, you might say, yeah, the kids, I, I think they got out, I, I went up there and told them. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly what happened. I think this is a young man sort of initially not covering up. I don't think he meant it harmfully, but, you know, skating over the fact that he feels guilty that he didn't physically go up the stairs to recover the children. Maybe at the time he was in such a panic, he thought, I called up to them. They always hear me when I call from the bottom of the stairs. That's enough. I got to get out of here and and help my dad or whatever. And eventually he probably got up the courage to set things straight because... His account of actually physically going up there and like seeing the kids Conf- is an important fact later on. Yeah, it confuses the case yeah. uh, immensely. Because if he sees the kids at that point, then they they were there. But they, no, but but I'm, he clarifies later, no one actually saw them in the attic. So it, we don't even know if they're up there at this point. And I'm sure we're going to find that no children's skeletons were found in the fire. In any case. I don't think John's fib was an ill-meant deception. I think it just came from a place of guilt. Once it became clear that there was no getting back into the house safely on foot, the family moved to try and find help. The phone, being seemingly actively on fire, was not in service. Or, well, yeah, they do that. Or the line might have been cut previously. We'll talk about that later. So Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the Fayetteville Vi- Fire Department. I doubt that house was terribly close by either. It seems like people were pretty spread out in this area. 
Uh, a driver passing on a nearby road had also seen flames and called the police from a nearby tavern. However, this driver didn't make it through to the station either because they could not reach the operator or because the tavern phone was broken. It's unclear again. But either the Sodders' neighbor or passing motorist eventually made it through to the fire department to um, from another phone closer to the town center. So it did get through. It just took a bit. During this time, George, barefoot, attempted to climb the house's outside wall. He broke open a window, cut his arm in the process. George intended to, along with help from his sons, obtain a ladder and climb up to the attic window. And he always kept his ladder in the same place. Um, And it could not be found. Not in the place they always kept it, not anywhere nearby. Very bad luck. Maybe very bad luck. Failing to find a ladder, George then went to use one of his trucks to park beneath the attic window and kind of climb up to retrieve the children, using it as like a massive stepping stone. But both of the trucks that he had on the property and used for his business refused to start, despite the fact that they were working perfectly the day before. Both of them. And there was nothing else they could do. As the six remaining solders stood and watched the solder home and ostensibly the five children inside burned to the ground. And it did burn. It collapsed after 45 minutes, um, which was kind of evidence to them that the kids could not have survived. I mean, it was engulfed. It burned to ash. The fire department did not respond to the scene for hours until later that morning. Fayetteville Fire Chief F.J. Morris said the next day that um, there were several reasons why the response was so slow. The fire department had had many local losses from World War II. Um, It was the holidays, so people are off or they're not where they're usually going to be. The department worked in a phone tree style. So when there was an emergency, one guy would call the next guy would call the next guy instead of just like always being in a certain place and an alarm going off. Yeah, forgive me. That seems like a bad way to run it. It's not great. The way you announce a snow day should not be the way you announce an emergency. But I bet a lot of volunteer fire departments do this or did this until recently with the internet and everything. Yes. Um, And then to cap it all off, Morris, the fire chief, could not drive the fire truck. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) So that meant that though he was present at the department, he did get the news of the emergency. The fire chief had to wait until someone who could actually drive the fire truck happened to come to the department and pick him up and bring him over. You see, this is why you have to promote from within, really. This is is crazy. Let's get someone who can drive the truck in charge. Yeah, I bet Morris was a Nepo baby. The firefighters, and one of whom happened to be Jenny Sauter's brother, couldn't do much but wait for the embers to burn out, and then they combed through the ashes that remained of the Sauter home, which had kind of caved into the basement. And they only spent a couple hours doing this. Uh, By 10 a.m., Chief Morris told the Sauters that no bones had been found as of yet, which would be expected, uh, considering they thought five children died in the fire. Right. Now, here accounts differ as well. Um, Along with this sort of no-bones version, there's also a version of this story that has the fire department finding a few bone fragments and internal organs on the scene, but they chose not to tell the family. 
for whatever reason. Well, those are two very different versions of the story, though. Yes. We'll get into the second possibility a little later. But either way, the search was brief and cursory at best. And according to the family, they didn't find any remains. A more thorough search of the scene was postponed indefinitely due to the Christmas holiday, and the Sodders were just told to leave the site of their burned-down home as is for investigation, and the authorities would kind of just wrap it up later. Yeah, we'll take care of this. George Sodder wasn't having it. Less than a week later, he bulldozed four to five feet of dirt into the pit that remained of what was once the Sodder home. He and Jenny could not bear to see the site of their family's worst tragedy anymore. They just wanted to make it into a, a memorial garden. The next day, the local coroner convened an inquest that found the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring, which is truly an insanely quick investigation considering most of the department wasn't even back from Christmas vacation yet. Right, that's true. But if the wiring was real faulty, then then it's not hard to point to. Mm-hmm. Um, do, did anyone ever do repairs after that one, like, you know, the guy who named himself Inspector found the wiring problem? Well, I mean, I don't know if this was before or after they had the new wiring done at the house, but the the wiring was checked in the months preceding the fire by a professional. So I don't know. In addition to that, just loon who had come, yes. come by. <laughs> Looking for freelance electrician work. Now... What's pretty suspicious is that one of the jurors at the coroner's inquest was the very traveling salesman that had warned George his house would burn and the children would be destroyed because of his anti-Mussolini rhetoric. And did you know the defendant or the victims? (laughs) Yeah, it feels like he should have been ruled out there. Yeah. Maybe he forgot to mention it. (sighs) He only met him the one time. Or he purposefully didn't mention it. Death certificates for Maurice, Martha, Lewis, Jenny Jr., and Betty Sauter were issued on December 30th because this case was not going to interrupt Fayetteville's New Year's Eve. And the local newspaper reported a series of contradictions as well. They said uh, both that all five bodies had been found and elsewhere in like either the same article or the same paper, uh, they said only a single part of one body had been recovered. Oh, so real dogged reporting there. Okay, so just just right in the same publication, there's a variety of opinions. Mm-hmm. But is is there like historical consensus around this? Do we do we, we think know they found the, bodies or no? We know what the Sodders know. As for George and Jenny, they couldn't even attend the children's collective funeral on January second. They were so stunned by their grief. The surviving Sodder children, Joe, who had been discharged from the army just a day before the fire and was the only Sodder not home. John, George Jr., Marion, and little Sylvia attended in their stead. So the only children that survived were um, all of the oldest kids and then the youngest, Sylvia. So we'll get into the real meat of the mystery. Like, did someone set the fire? Did the five children presume dead escape? If so, what happened to them after the break? Oh, my God. Yeah, you've, you've, you've set up a lot of questions for yourself to answer here, Caroline. And I don't think I'm going to answer any of them. Oh, well, great. Spoiler alert. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. 
I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. And we're back. Uh, Carrie, in the first half of this show, you took us through the, uh, well, a brief history of the Sauter family and Mm -hmm. then the, you know, I I guess potentially, well, no, definitely tragic events. Um, Yeah, tragic no matter what happened. And this was, was it Christmas Eve 1945? Yeah. Pretty fraught time. Yeah. Yeah, I would (laughs) would say so. Christmas is hard for everybody. Or it's supposed to be a lovely time, you know? Yeah, but in Post-war practice... Post-war Christmas Eve? In practice, your house goes down and all your kids go missing. So Well, yeah, that doesn't happen to everyone, but if it does, it's really bad. So bones may have been found, bones may not have been found. As far as the Sauter family knows, no uh, remains were found after the fire that totally consumed their house. Mm-hmm. So soon after the funeral for the five presumed dead children, the story gets somehow even stranger. The remaining Sodders began to question the official findings from the investigation, which is a pretty understandable situation because there, this was a really slapdash inquest. Uh, uncertainties kind of abounded. If the fire had been caused by an electrical problem, as had been concluded, why had the family's Christmas lights remained on during the fire's early stages? Well, wouldn't wouldn't the, the wires have burned? Wouldn't... Like, if there was an electrical short that caused a fire, then the lights wouldn't still be on. Yeah, but the electrical system in your house is composed of different circuits. I don't know. This seems to be a really big thing that they point to, so maybe it was just one. I don't know what it was in the 40s. That's, that, like, that's all fine, but the heater sitting next to you on the floor there to keep you nice and cozy when we record the podcast... That could start a fire if it was next to a blanket. That would be an electrical fire, and... You wouldn't turn all the lights off in the rest of the house until the house started burning. Well, why had the ladder been moved from its usual place and, as was eventually found, thrown into the bottom of an embankment by unknown persons some 75 feet away from the house? Yeah, okay, so this one is weird. Mm Mm-hmm. And then outside sources... Although I do want to add that if you want to murder... If you want to murder someone's children... This is a weird way to do it, setting their house on fire and then taking the ladder away. Like, they didn't even block the indoor stairs to the attic, as far as we know. Maybe they were just seeing what they could get. Uh, Fish in a barrel situation. Yeah. It's weird. I'm just saying it's weird. It's definitely strange that the ladder was thrown into a ditch. I think the conceit is that the people who who think that the ladder was purposefully disposed of in some way think that it was in the service of a kidnapping, not a murder. Okay, so the, then the latter is just delaying you figuring out where the kids are? Or knowing at all that they were actually kidnapped. Oh, because the ladder was part of the kidnapping. Well, if you could go up to the attic to try and recover the kids, and then you see that there's no kids, then you know that they've been kidnapped. But if a fire burns down the house, 
you might never know they were kidnapped and just assume that they died in the fire. Right. And also, so it's a, they're assuming a cover up of a kidnapping. Sure. And also, even if the fire fails and doesn't burn the house down, you've, I don't know, obfuscated your, sure. your methods at least one step by getting rid of a tool used in the crime? Question mark. Well, not a tool that could have been used to try and save the children and then would have confirmed that the children were not present, I think is the main thing. I know, but what I'm getting stuck on with that is that there was also a stairwell inside the house that at the outset of the fire was still passable. The son, you know, lied about having gone up it. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't hear anyone or see anyone upstairs, so it could be that there was no one upstairs at that time. Yeah, sure, but when this person got rid of the ladder the ladder was not the only means to get to the attic. Yes. And they couldn't be sure that if they were the one to set the fire, they couldn't be sure that the fire is going to prevent people from getting to the attic another way. Well, I guess you could hope, Sean. Yeah, but you'd have to be hoping. It's like a really specific hope that the fire is going to block the stairs and then they're going to go try to get the ladder and oops, no ladder. And at the end, all you get is a delay of a couple of minutes of them figuring out there's no bodies in the, in the house. It's just a long walk. Well, then, outside sources began lending credence to the family's concerns as well. A telephone repairman hired by the Sodders told the family that the house's phone line had not been burned through by the fire, which was initially reported, but had actually been cut by someone who was both willing and able to climb up the 14-foot telephone pole and then reach two feet away while still holding onto the pole uh, from the pole to do the cutting. So he could tell that the line itself had been cut, not burned. Now, now that's very incriminating. Weirdly, neighbors had apparently seen a man stealing a block and tackle from the solder property during the fire. Now, a block and tackle is basically a system of like two plus pulleys with a rope or cable threaded between them. Like a crane. Yeah, but like more of like a manual one. And it's used to lift heavy loads, but usually by a person. So why was this guy taking the opportunity of a tragic fire to steal an old-timey pulley system? Yeah, I mean, people do loot in disasters, but it seems more <laughs> it seems more likely this might have been someone involved in the crime who was like, hey, well, I'm here. Yeah. Now, the neighbors apparently identified this man, and he was arrested. The man admitted to the theft, claiming he had actually been the one who had cut the phone line because he apparently thought it was the power line. And then he denied having anything to do with the fire. Oh, so just a, a second crime. I don't know what the power line has anything to do with stealing something from someone's garage. Uh, I was going to say floodlights, but they probably didn't. I guess they probably didn't have motion detector floodlights. No, no, no. And alarm systems he probably no. wouldn't have been concerned about. It seems no record identifying this person still exists, which isn't too crazy because this was like the mid 40s. Um, but with that record and identifying information goes any explanation as to why he would have wanted to cut the power line just to steal this pulley and rope. Maybe it could it could be that if we had lived in 1945, we would understand immediately <laughs> something that we were not seeing here. But that's weird. Um, it, does it? I know we don't know his identity. Do we know why he wasn't questioned any further, or why that was enough to totally dismiss him as a, as a suspect in what seems to be a crime? I don't know. Jenny Sauter would later say in 1968 that if the power line had been cut as he had intended. 
She, George, and the surviving children would have never been able to make it out of the house at all. Now, I'm not sure exactly why this is. Maybe she wouldn't have woken up because of the telephone call, or I don't know. I don't know what the situation is. But she she felt they wouldn't have been able to make it out of the house, and everyone would have died if he had actually been able to cut the power line. Had the fire already started? I don't know. Because if not, then no power would mean no fire. <laughs> I he- have. I do have to point that out. Unless someone set the fire. Yeah, but I thought it was faulty wiring. They figured they figured that out at the inquest, which had a creepy guy on the jury five days after they supposedly investigated for two hours. Okay, but I don't I don't even if they are correct, you can't buy that conclusion. Because it's it's really a slapdash investigation that's compromised. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll give you that. Well, this person never went to trial for the, the theft. The meager details about the suspect seem to point back to a story from a 1968 issue of the Charleston Gazette Mail titled What Really Happened to the Children? Um, and that's where Jenny was interviewed. But there's really nowhere else that talks about this that isn't just referring back to this interview. There's also the fact that there were barely, if any, remains found at the scene, even though five children had supposedly perished in the fire. Fire Chief Morris was insistent that, in his opinion, the fire had burned hot enough to completely reduce any remains to ash. But if you're a real OG, what up to the scary squad, (laughs) you might remember way back in the olden times of episode five, where we talked about spontaneous human combustion. And in that episode, we discussed that it has to be very hot to fully cremate a body. Yes, I've uh, completely cursed my Google search history once again. So hi to whatever FBI agent is looking at my concerning out-of-context search terms. (laughs) But as I mentioned back in 2020, pause for shivers, (laughs) it takes between 1,100 to 1,500 degrees Celsius or 2,012 to 2,732 degrees Fahrenheit of heat to reduce a human body completely to ash. But if I can add a caveat also from that episode, the victims of spontaneous human combustion were able to reach that temperature because the fat in their body was burning at a really high But they still had remains. They were not completely cremated. A lot of them had like loose feet a left, leg. They were just but they a had leg. bones in those ashes and stuff too. They weren't just like like sand kind of, no. you know, powder. But ash was burned, or bones were burned. Bones were burned, but they weren't. There's no chunks, is what I'm saying. Right. Everything's a fine dust here. Yes. Like a like a, a crematory oven. Well, it would have or to be. Or like a, if there were no bones there. It would have to be a fine dust. But Sean, even in a crematory, your average crematorium burns bodies at 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay? So comparatively, a wood fire burns at a 1,500 to 1,650 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay? And wood is very flammable. But... In a crematorium, you're still getting chunks. You're still getting bits. Literal jet fuel burns at around 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. So in Chief Morris's assertion... Not enough to melt steel beams as... Well, we'll get into that some other time. <laughs> but in, according to Chief Morris, the Sodder's moder- modest timber frame home, mostly wood, which burns up to 1,650 degrees Fahrenheit, was so hot it had topped jet fuels burning by 500 plus degrees 
because that's the only way five bodies would have been completely cremated. There were to a fine powder, no chunks. Now, Jenny Sauter was already suspicious. Wait, did you say jet fuels 1500 Fahrenheit? Yeah. So wood burns hotter. Well, up to. Yeah. It, jet fuel burns around 1500. That's right. just a difference of 100 degrees. But, right. but I know paper. They burns. would have to be up to over 2000 degrees Fahrenheit to get anywhere close to being powder. And that's just not happening. Jenny Sauter was already suspicious when she came across a newspaper article about a similar house fire around the same time that had actually killed an entire family of seven. Even in this case, skeletal remains of all of those victims were reported to have been found at the scene. Jenny began undergoing her own experiments, including the unsettling test she made on small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely consumed by any fire she could make, and none ever were. There were always chunks. How many times did she, like, how, how, it seemed several. How many animals went into her little <laughs> experimental crematorium? I'm hoping they were already dead. She consulted the employee of a local crematorium about the case, and he told her that chunks of human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is true. When you get the ashes of a deceased relative, for instance, they're not a completely fine, sifted powder, but instead include bits and pieces of bone mixed in. Or so I've been told, FBI agent. I, I don't know. <laughs> but this cremation would also occur in an actual crematorium after two full hours of burning at that temperature. But that's much longer than the solder house remained fully engulfed at the height of the fire. It collapsed after 45 minutes. So that's not enough time and not enough heat to completely reduce five bodies to fine ash. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you your premise. There was also the question of the trucks. George could not believe that both of his vehicles, which had worked fine within 24 hours before the fire, had coincidentally both failed to start at a time when they would be needed most. He felt that the trucks must have been tampered with, maybe even by the man who had stolen the block and tackle from the garage. I will say, eventually, according to one of George's later son and Sons-in-law via a Charleston Gazette Mail article from 2013, George did eventually come to think that he and his sons had somehow flooded the engines in their panic to get the trucks started. Well, I was... Both maybe is unlikely, but this is the 40s. They're probably not very reliable. What I had wondered is if it was just unseasonably cold. It's probably not that far it south. It was but... cold enough to freeze the barrel of water. Right, yeah. So, I mean... 1945 truck maybe just both trucks froze up yeah it's a terrible coincidence but i could i could grant that one so what of the weird phone call the wrong number and the lady with the creepy laugh i, I know the more coincidences you stack up on top of each other the weirder they seem but mm -hmm. this one very much feels like it's just something that happened to me but make your case well, according to a 2005 segment in NPR by writer Stacy Horn, investigators did later locate the woman who had supposedly made the call. The woman confirmed that it had indeed been a wrong number and she lived somewhere nearby. Now, I don't see literally any more details on this aspect of the story anywhere else. Uh, no names, nothing more. So I want to mention I'm unsure how much we can rule out the possibility of the call being related to the fire. It's likely it probably was not. I just don't know. That's a big... I've done this a couple of times in this story, as I've tried to poke little holes in your narrative, mm -hmm. Carrie. Um, 
but that's a big who possibly benefits from calling the family for some reason on a fake wrong number and giggling before. Is it to find out that they're at home? It's to be creepy. But yeah, maybe to find out they're at home to make sure that they're not out for Christmas Eve or something. I don't know. Yeah, but you'll see lights on. You're, you're going to stalk the house before you set it on fire, I'm assuming. Maybe. It all kept piling up, and the Sodders, perhaps both certain the investigation had been botched and desperate to believe their children could also still be alive, were fed up with the lack of concrete answers. And there was also some new information that came to light. Uh, It came out that the driver of a bus who had been passing through Fayetteville late that fateful Christmas Eve had actually told police he'd seen people throwing balls of fire at the house. And this lined up with a strange discovery made a few months after the fire by Sylvia when she was kind of poking around the yard. So he just saw some warlocks? Said balls of fire. Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object. And George, remembering how his wife Jenny had mentioned hearing a loud thump on the roof prior to the fire, kind of put it all together. Someone had thrown this ball at the roof, lit... Um, And in his opinion, it resembled what was referred to as a pineapple bomb, which was kind of like a hand grenade type object or um, similar incendiary device. They threw it up, lit onto the roof, and this ball, probably one of several, was what started the fire. The ignition point, if you will. Were there any other balls found? No, but maybe they burned up too. I don't know. Do they have Maybe, Maybe the evidence was covered up. Do they have a theory for how well the, for how the ball was ignited? Was it covered in? No, they just said it looked like maybe George had some experience, um, or maybe uh, was it Joseph that was in World War Two? Maybe he thought it looked like the grenades they used. I don't know. Right, but you said it was a, like a rubberized ball, right? He said it resembled a pineapple bomb hand grenade. Yeah, but what was it made of? I don't know. I don't. I, this is literally like all the information I have is in this episode. Because what the what the fragmentation grenades he's talking about? They look like pineapples, right? Because they're made up of tiny little squares that are meant to break up and hit people when mm-hmm. they explode. I'm thinking it's kind of like a the, the concept of like a napalm ball. You know, it's like a lit thing that might burst upon you know hitting something. Yeah, but it didn't burst. Well, like break apart. It was. Uh, I mean, it seemed like it it wasn't totally fresh and and great looking, but all I saw was small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object. Yeah, I just, yeah, I want more information on how they think this fire was lit. So do I, Sean. (laughs) If I was going to set a house on fire, my first thought would not be taking a lacrosse ball and dipping it in like, you know, even if you have napalm or something, (laughs) I I would not be dipping a lacrosse ball in napalm and... and throwing it on a roof well i think they just kind of put it together with the bus driver saying he saw balls of fire being thrown at the house i know it's kind of like well shit we found a ball and it's weird i know exactly And something hit the roof and rolled off what rolls fucking balls yeah but asphalt shingles i don't think are going to catch so well that this ball just makes i don't know if they're asphalt shingles it's a timber frame modest house i don't know what they have on their roof could be a wood roof sure it could be tar that would that would uh, catch a lot easier Mm mm-hmm I didn't look into the, the roof construction. But we're not making a Molotov cocktail. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a little shot. Dink. 
There were also sightings of the possibly dead, possibly missing five Sauter children. And I'm going to start referring to these five children as the Sauter victims to try and represent the sort of open-ended nature of their fates and not confuse them with the definitely alive remaining Sauter children. Mm -hmm. Um, A woman who had watched the fire burning from the road, which, you know, you're going to pull over and be like, oh, shit. Uh, She said she had seen some of the Sauter victims actually inside a passing car at the scene of the fire, kind of looking out and being driven away. Now, this is interesting. Another woman who worked at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, West Virginia, the capital of the state, said that she had served the Sauter victims at breakfast the morning after the fire and had also spotted the presence of a car with Florida license plates in the rest stop's parking lot, which was something that stood out enough for the witness to link it to the possible sighting of the missing children. They probably didn't get a lot of, you know, pass-throughs from Florida. Did they have an adult with them? I believe so, but I did. There was not a lot of information no, I, about who was with them. I got you. It's they weren't just like five loose kids. I think that would have been mentioned. The oldest Sauter kid is fourteen, right? The, the one oldest that's missing? missing one, yes. I, well, but then how would they have gotten there I, if it's really them? You know, I just think I, I think there were was at least one adult. I think if any of these kids are being served in a restaurant <laughs> with an adult, I think the fourteen-year-old is dead. There's no way. That these kids are just being taken if there's a 14... 14 14-year-olds were basically adults. I will say they didn't... The Wherever I was able to find these details didn't say exactly how many of the children were seen. Mm. But it just said she had seen the children. So I assumed it was all five. It's a big group. Because you would have remarked like, yeah, I saw four of them, but the oldest one wasn't there, you know? Right. You're not going to bring your your group of abducted tween to teen children Unless they don't know they've been abducted. Okay. We'll get there. All of this culminated in the Sodders hiring private investigator C.C. Tinsley from nearby Gawley Bridge to take on the case. And it was Tinsley that told the Sodders the very same insurance salesman who had threatened George had also been on the coroner's jury who had ru- who had ruled the fire an accident. So the Sodders didn't know this until Tinsley found it out. Tinsley also relayed rumors that he heard all over Fayetteville saying that the Sodders had been lied to about the investigation. Though Chief Morris in this telling had said to the Sodders that there were no remains at all found in the ashes, rumor had it that the fire chief had actually discovered a heart, which he had packed into a metal box and secretly buried. That feels like rumor stuff. No? This was apparently confessed to a local minister, got around to Tinsley, and was confirmed by the minister to George when the Sodder patriarch asked him if it was true. So, so much for clergy penitent privilege. I was going to say, he's really not supposed to do that. Not even to the father of the the child. Now, George, along with Tinsley, confronted Fire Chief Morris, who apparently admitted to the deed and agreed to show them where he buried the metal box. So the group dug it up and they took the contents to a local funeral director. Don't know if I'd trust anyone who lived around there, but I guess he would know. And he actually ruled that the remains were of fresh beef liver that had actually never been exposed to fire. So wasn't even cooked. What? Was not a human heart. Just a loose liver. Okay. A loose cow liver. So what do you make of this? Morris later admitted that the box hadn't come from the scene of the Sodder fire and that he'd actually placed it there in hope that the Sodders themselves would find it during their continuing investigation and finally be satisfied that their children hadn't actually died in the fire and they would stop poking around. Yeah. So he planted it. 
I was going to suggest that, but it seemed like too big a leap. That is wild. It's crazy. Now, I had the same reaction. That's wild. And the Wikipedia sighting on this part of the story comes directly from one of our main sources for this episode, which is an article in Smithsonian Magazine from 2012 titled, The Children Who Went Up in Smoke. Now, considering the publication, you know, a well-regarded thing, I'm inclined to believe in their reporting, and I'm using it for a main source, so, you know, obviously. (laughs) But um, they do cite a number of textual sources, as well as an interview conducted with George and Jenny's granddaughter, Jenny Henthorne, daughter of Sylvia Sauter, and she was the one who supplied back a copy of Smithsonian's pathology report. However, like many things in this strange case, there are a lot of dead ends, for me at least, in some of these details. Um, Things where I can't follow up immediately with the work cited because they're out-of-print books or very out-of-print newspapers. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's hard to believe because, like, that's it? Like, the fire chief of your town blatantly lied to you, planted evidence about burying one of your children's burned hearts? As some sort of cover-up, and then just nothing happens after that? He looped in a local priest and got him to, to like, fake... Well, he confessed to the guy. No, I think this is all part of the plot, Carrie. You had the wool pulled over your eyes like the rest of the sheep. (laughs) I haven't found any further results of what happened after this with Fire Chief Morris. Um, It seems insane that George didn't, like, yell about this for the rest of his life or somehow get this guy in trouble for doing this. But then again, maybe he did try. Maybe part of the conspiracy is that everyone in the town in power was in on it and the higher-ups would never be punished for their part in this dastardly deed. I, I I don't know. I don't see Chief Morris as part of some you know fascist conspiracy to traffic the children away or anything i i think he's at best trying to give a bad man (laughs) well he's certainly a weak and stupid man Uh, at best he is trying to give some closure to the family and he's doing and he's sick what he's sick of hearing from him and that is at worst he's definitely i think that is really what's at play here he's sick he's we we're we're done the police have told me we're not doing an investigation i've told you we're not doing an investigation you want a heart here's a heart (laughs) well the morris of it all ends mostly here there's not really anything else relating to him in this story Over the next few years, more sightings of the Sodder victims were reported, and more tips continued to come into the family. A real turning point came when George saw a photo in a newspaper of school children in New York City, and he was convinced that one of the children in the photo was actually Betty Sodder, one of the supposed dead Sodder children. Uh Now, is this a grieving father desperate to see Jesus in a tortilla, so to speak, or is this a grieving father who would 100% recognize his own daughter, even among thousands? That's the question. But George drove to Manhattan from West Virginia in search of this child, and he apparently did find her parents, I assume via information included in the article. Again, it's not really detailed, but the parents refused to speak to him. So, is this shady? Or are they just suspicious of this weirdo who has driven from West Virginia to ask to see their daughter? Yeah, I would be. Who he saw in a newspaper. Yeah, I would be very suspicious. Yeah. So I don't have more information on this, but it's referenced in the Smithsonian article. What year was that? Mm, It's the late 40s. Yeah. In 1949, the Sodders decided to convene a new search of the fire scene and hired a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter, 
very Peter B. Parker vibes, <laughs> to investigate. Hunter was decidedly more thorough than Morris's band of buddies, and several objects were discovered. Damaged coins, a partially scorched dictionary, and several shards of vertebra. So this is a professional Washington, D.C. pathologist. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution for analysis. They are getting involved at every turn here. They used to do a lot more than just that TV channel, huh? Yeah. And the Smithsonian responded with the following report. Quote, the human bones consist of four lumbar vertebra belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which nor normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, the oldest missing solder child. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to possibly show 16 to 17 year maturation. Yeah, of course it is. But here's one weird thing, Sean. Okay. The vertebra showed no evidence that they had ever been exposed to fire, <sighs> which, you know, would have been necessary if they were cremated remains. They would have scorch marks that you would know that they were created from fire. Cremated remains? But these were remains from the... Yes, but if they had burned... Yeah, you would expect... They, they would be burned. They wouldn't be just clean vertebra. Let me offer a scorched bit of torso, rots away over the years, and what is left behind is bone that was uh, not touched by fire. That was yeah, but all of the, like these are pieces of ver like the other stuff is burned. They should have burn marks. Okay, but where, do we have a theory on where these verte human vertebrae came from? We do, Sean. Quote, it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful evacuation of the basement of the house. The report continued, noting that the house reportedly burned for only about half an hour or so and concluding, quote, one would expect to find the full skeletons of the five children rather than only four vertebra. Yeah. So in the opinion of the Smithsonian Institution, which goddamn bones the TV show is set because they know their bones, <laughs> these vertebra were most likely actually in the dirt that George had used, that he had hauled in to fill in the pit where the house had stood to create the memorial garden. What? And not related to the fire. They were just some incidental bones. Just random bones? We gotta find out about these bones. I mean, that's another mystery, but they didn't think it was involved in the fire at all. In their opinion, it was probably, it's probably like when like trace DNA is found at different places, like, oh, there are just some bones in that dirt. Yeah, but where's this high school junior that died in the, uh, <laughs> in, in the quarry? This accredited report led to two hearings about the case at the state capitol in Charleston, West Virginia, after which current governor Oki L. Patterson, which definitely sounds like a governor of West Virginia, <laughs> and state police superintendent W.B. Burchett told the Sodders the search was, quote, hopeless, declaring the case closed. So it's great treatment of two parents you, act, you really do think have tragically lost five children. Right. So that's hopeless. It was at this time that the Sodders finally erected the famous Route 16 billboard, which included much of the information I mentioned at the top of the show. But let's go over exactly what was on the first billboard and the first flyers. So for the flyers, which they were 
handed out all over the place. Um, the headline was wanted $5,000 reward, missing persons, five children, brothers and sisters, where they kidnapped, murdered, mysteriously disappeared, missing since December 24th, 1945. Mr. and Mrs. George Sauter of Fayetteville, West Virginia offers $5,000 reward for any information, information leading to the whereabouts of their five missing children or even one missing child. See, do you and underneath there's the five pictures, there's the names and ages, um, some identifying details about each of the kids. And then there's like a couple of paragraphs about the circumstances of the fire. I, um, listen, I, I, I don't want to get on, get on one of my hobby horses again here. <laughs> Um, but we really need snappier copy in uh, missing posters. Well, they didn't have any copywriters for for this situation. People are on the move. You know what I mean? You need to give them something they're going to remember. The very, very first billboard is harder to find clear imagery of, but the headline of it is, What was their fate? Kidnapped, murdered, still alive? Question mark. Next to a similarly large $5,000 reward. Beneath that, you have the five portraits, and beneath that, text detailing the case and identifying details. It's near impossible to make out what this was in the images, but this is what the text read in the 30 years later version of the billboard that I mentioned before. Mm Mm-hmm. On Christmas Eve, 1945, our home was set afire and five of our children, ages 5 through 14, kidnapped. The officials blamed defective wiring, although lights were still burning after the fire started. The official report stated that the children died in the fire. However, no bones were found in the residue and there was no smell of burning flesh during or after the fire. Which is, I mean, you would think five people, yeah, there would probably be that. What was the motive of the law officers involved? What did they have to gain by making us suffer all these years of injustice? Why did they lie and force us to accept those lies? So the reward reward for information leading to the discovery of the Sauter victims was soon increased to $10,000, and the family did receive some tips. A woman wrote to the Sauters to tell them that the eldest victim, Martha, was actually in a convent in St. Louis. Another lead originated in Texas, where a bar patron reported overhearing an incriminating conversation regarding a long-ago Christmas Eve fire that occurred in West Virginia. Still another tip claimed that the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's in Florida, which is interesting because of the whole Florida license plate thing. Sure, but but I'm guessing all these leads came to naught. Well, George Sauter took it upon himself to follow up every lead. He traveled to each location to investigate, but he never found any answers. Just let me meet your kids! In 1967, it just keeps getting weirder, Sean. More than two decades after the Christmas Eve fire, Jenny discovered an envelope addressed only to her in the mail, postmarked from Kentucky, but including no return address. Of course. The envelope contained a photo of a man in his mid-twenties who, yes, looks like he can definitely be related to me. So that means he certainly looks like he could be a slightly swarthy, oldier version of one of the Sodder sons. (laughs) He's dark-haired, dark-eyed, strong brows. And indeed, on the back of the picture, there was a handwritten note. Louis Sauter. I love brother Frankie. I lil boys. A90132 or 35. Now, the I lil boys, I think this is what it is. It's a, a capital I-L-I-L, but the, the capital I looks like an L. So mm-hmm. I think it's I lil or it's lil but it's all lowercase. So I think it's I Lil Boys. I don't know what that means. Yeah, it still doesn't help me with like... It seems like maybe syntax. it's like a group, like we're the I Lil Boys, you know? Um, 
I don't know what I Love Brother Frankie is. I don't know what the numbers are. And they didn't really either. Jenny and George agreed that the man could resemble Lewis. Um, he had only been nine at the time of the fire, so they never saw him as an older boy. But this was the picture that was sent. Mm-hmm. And I love um, Brother Lewis. I love Brother Frankie. Oh, Frankie. Lewis is the child? Yes. He, he was nine when he could have died or disappeared. But there were similarities to Lewis. Uh, they both had dark curly hair, dark brown eyes. They had the same straight Roman nose, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. Yeah, as, as Which I also have. Is that an Italian thing? I was going to say, as you've noted, a lot of your family has all of these things too. Yes. Are we this? Am I a solder child? <laughs> Gary, we've cracked it. <laughs> anyway, uh, the Sodders hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky to follow up. And can we guess what happened? Like in almost every other case we've discussed that had a PI? Oh, the PI took all their money and vanished. He was never heard from again, and the Sodders could never find him. Never hire a PI. So the family felt stuck about what else they could do. Uh, they feared that publishing the letter or the name of the Kentucky town on the postmark could lead to someone harming their long-lost son if he was still in trouble. Instead, the newly updated billboard was amended and stayed this way through the final version of the billboard to include the portrait of the possible older Lewis Sodder. At home, and this is really heartbreaking, the Sodders hung an enlarged version of the portrait over the fireplace, a tribute to the missing son that they had never known as a man. Just a year later, in 1968, George Sodder passed away, never knowing what had become of his five children, but feeling deep in his bones that they were still alive somewhere, or they had been after the night of the fire. Jenny passed away in 1989, wearing only black from the time of the fire all the way until her death as a sign of mourning. And with her passing, the billboard finally came down. The remaining Sodder children, along with their children, would continue the investigation even after the elder Sodder's deaths. This resulted in a variety of theories, as listed in Smithsonian Magazine. Quote, the local mafia had these are like a list of theories. The local mafia had tried to recruit George and he declined, or they tried to extort money from George and he refused, or the children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who came inside to the unlocked front door, told them about the fire and offered to take them someplace safe, and they went along not knowing they were being kidnapped. They might not have survived the night. If they had, and if they lived for decades, if it was really Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents, possibly only because they wanted to protect them. What? These are just a whole list of possibilities. Yeah, protect them from what, though? I don't know. Maybe they felt for them it was better if they didn't know they were still alive. That wouldn't be better for any parent. Maybe the Sicilian mafia would come after them if they knew. See, that's why, but they're not in Sicily. Well, there was speculation that if the Sicilian Mafia had indeed been involved, the children would have been taken to Italy, making it near impossible to get any answers. Sylvia, the last remaining Sodder child... I, is it okay if I say, I think it's racist to invoke the Sicilian Mafia? It's only because... So the you're, the, you're being the champion of Italian immigrant rights right now? It's, as I always am. It's... <laughs> It's only because the family is Italian that we're even saying this. There's a, well, no, that's not it. That's not it. Because 
like if it was my dad when he was a kid, that wouldn't have been the case. But this is a case where there's a huge Italian immigrant population and all of them are mad at George for things relating to Italian fascism. Right. Not to the not to organized crime. But they were but they were in with Mussolini. Yeah, but that doesn't mean the people in George's neighborhood were in with the Sicilian. But they were in mo- with Mussolini. They were they were pro him. You yeah. don't know if there was a little little West Virginia mob over there. Well, I just don't know why we need the mob. Like, if if all of his neighbors are fascists and they killed him for being a bad Italian, quote unquote, I, I'm I'm more comfortable with that explanation. Unless you, unless I assume you're going to now give me evidence of his uh, debts to the mafia. No. Sylvia, the last remaining solder child, passed away on April 21st, 2021, at the age of 79. Her obituary mentions her predeceased brothers, John, Joe, and George, as well as her sister, Marion. But of the solder victims, it states, quote, Five other siblings were unable to be located following a fire that occurred in December 1945 in their Fayetteville home. Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty. So poor Sylvia just two years old at the time of the fire, said later in life that her very first memories at all were of that fire on Christmas Eve, the sight of her father bleeding, the terrible sound of everyone screaming around her. Sylvia told the Gazette Mail in 2013, quote, I was, one of the, I was the last one of the kids to leave home, meaning like move out, and that she and her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened to her siblings. Quote, I experienced their grief for a long time. But even in death, little Sylvia would not agree that her five siblings had really, truly perished in that fateful fire. So, Sean, what do you think happened to the five missing solder children? Oh, Carrie, you put me into these difficult positions. I, I, <laughs> I didn't do anything. I hate, I hate being the one to throw cold water all On over fire? things. On a, well, yeah, I, that was not intentional, by the way. Um, I think one of two things, honestly, is the most likely, and I don't know which. I don't know which I lean toward more. Those kids could have died in that fire. It would have been a series of very extraordinary circumstances to not leave any remains. But I mean, weirder things have happened, I guess. And if the kids died in the fire, I think the fire was honestly an accidental fire. Mm-hmm. Because I do think if you're going to murder someone's children or their whole family to get revenge on them, I think just lighting their house on fire and then leaving it at that is is weird. I think it's a weird way to go about it. Okay. So take out like everything else. Who sent that picture to Jenny claiming it was Lewis? That, and why? That could have just been a prankster. Sometimes people are mean, and this is a pretty famous case. But what's the stuff on the back why, mean? Why did the guy call Why not just write Lewis Sauter on the back? Why I love Brother Frankie and a bunch of numbers and shit? I don't know. Why did someone say that their daughter was at a convent? I don't know. I mean, because that's like physical evidence, you know, it's a little more tangible to me. And like... Yeah, but it's just an Italian boy with some pen on the back. Yeah, I guess. It's just, it takes an extra step instead of of just, you know, being some sort of mentally ill person saying like, I saw her at a convent just to be like involved in the case. There's an extra step involved in like finding this photo and mailing it to them. That's all true. But but with these like little tantalizing clues, it's always like, okay, but if, if if the road ends there, 
what does it tell us? And also, what is it supposed to imply? Is the working theory that it was Lewis and that he sent them the photo because he now wanted to reveal himself? But if so, why hadn't he done it before? And if it was Lewis's caretaker slash kidnapper, why is that person sending evidence at all? And why didn't they do it before? If it's a bystander, how do they know what's going on? And why did they not make any other effort to reach the family after this one contact with the photo? It's only one photo. And then that, that well dries up completely. I've tried to reckon what I think. Oh, can, can I say the other the unfortunate possibility is that the children were kidnapped from... But not all the kids were in the attic, right? Only a couple of them? Five of them. Oh, oh. The, the five. The five that are missing were all in the attic? Or, well, that's what they thought. So... They were not in the downstairs because Jenny, the mother, went downstairs. She saw Marion and none of the other kids were around. So she figured they're up sleeping in the attic. But she didn't see them at all after she went to sleep. So another possibility, the kids... Were already out of the house. Were already out of the house. They're feeding the cows. They are kidnapped. And then a, a fire either starts just by coincidence. I know there's an awful lot of coincidences. Or they're kidnapped and then a fire is set to like hide, obfuscate Hide what's thing. going on. Which would be a great way to hide a kidnapping. I still, if we're connecting it somehow to like uh, political, you know, anger at the family or at the dad or, or some kind of a mafia grudge or what have you. I think this is a weird way to get revenge on someone. I'm not saying they didn't ruin his life if there was a they. They did, but uh, in a way where they couldn't take credit, they couldn't probably see his nose be rubbed in it because once you steal a bunch of kids, you have to kind of leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he doesn't die. Usually revenge plots involve killing the person you want revenge on. Mm-hmm. So it's all weird. Um, but if, if somebody did come in and kidnap the kids and start the fire to obfuscate that fact, then I don't think the kids survived very long because, you know, unfortunately, I don't think most kidnapped victims survive very long unless, uh, they're being trafficked, which is an even darker thing in some ways. I've tried to reckon what I think could have happened, or I guess why this happened, if the kids were taken. The best that I can come up with, and again, I'm not working with every bit of published evidence ever on this case, because a lot of it is in newspaper archives that don't exist, but maybe relatives of Jenny, who lived in Florida, yes, kind of picked up on the fact that the husband was a very, I don't know, well, anti-Mussolini, but like just politically opposite them or whatever they felt that they were doing a bad job with these kids or they better deserved these kids or whatever so you think her you think george's in-laws i don't know about in-laws you think this was a case of fascist in-laws i think maybe they felt that they should take the children away and that they kind of came in and be like and you know, whatever series of events happened, they could have convinced the kids to come with them quietly because they knew them. They were friendly people or they had already met them and, um, and left with them. Maybe stopped at that rest stop, which is why there was the Florida license plates and then just went down to Florida with them. Who knows if they stayed there or went to Italy. That's the, like I'm, and I'm, 
I'm really trying hard putting that together. Like I have, otherwise I have no clue what this could be. And I, I don't want, I don't want you or our listener to get the impression that all of the Deep South was pro Mussolini. No, at the end of no, World War I'm II. talking about this very specific situation. Um, yeah, I know, but like you know, her family in Florida wouldn't necessarily be fascist just because. I, of well, all they of their were neighbors. also Italian immigrants, so if that was the prevailing vibe, so uh, all Italian immigrants are fascists. That's what you're saying. No. Wow, Carrie. No. Because I, I know my family was certainly not interested. <laughs> and But, you know, we were in New York. That's a very different place. I don't know. Like, political beliefs are different to different communities. I, I'm not... I am the last person to be racist against Italians, Sean. I see right I am through just, you. I am scraping to try and figure out. Because there's so much that tells me five people didn't die in there. But there's so much that tells me, well, if not, what happened? Right. It, it's just that I don't see. I think there is an answer here, but but I, I I don't. I think the evidence, like Jack the Ripper, right? There's an answer, but the evidence that w- would have given us that answer has been lost forever. It's gone. Yeah. So that's the curious case of the Sodder children. Well, it's very curious. Uh, Boy, I if I had to place a bet, and a bet that'll never be cashed because no one knows the answer to this, uh, I, I, I think they might have died in the fire. I, I know it's but weird. But there's no sound of screaming. There's no smell. People die in their sleep in fires. The fire supposedly originated downstairs. Yeah, the smoke goes so, up to the attic and everybody upstairs passes out and then asphyxiates before the fire gets to them. But before people who are closer to the fire are able to get out? It seems like it's kind of not the right sort of timeline of events there. It's weird. I actually, I think the weirdest detail is that there were no bones. No bones about it. No bones about it. Um, I, I, there's there's a, a possibility scratching at the back of my head that the fire chief, in an one adding one extra fuck up to the chain. <laughs> Why not? Might as well. Might have, if he had found bone fragments on the day, not mentioned them to the family. Because, or just been like, hmm, gross. Well, like not <laughs> look, at, look at a bunch of rocks. He might have gone from like, I don't want to upset them, so let's not mention the bone fragments, to, okay, we've got to get them off our backs. Let's pretend this piece of cow liver is a, is a heart, a child's heart. <sighs> I mean, one thing that always you, much- adds to these cases is bad police work and intentionally... Obfuscate, obfuscative. Yep, obfuscating sure. to, to coin a term. Police work. Um, well, he was a firefighter. You know, in on so many of these unsolved cases, it's like, well, and the police really messed it up, so we'll never know. Yeah, but in this but like case, in this in this part, he he added to it, and it's not a police thing, but it's like he yeah, he's the fire chief, but that's who's investigating because it's a fire crime, right? If it is a crime. Oh gosh, Sean, I don't know, but you know, happy winter, I guess. Yeah, happy happy winter. This was a very happy story. <laughs> this was very nice. You told me my other story was too sad, so that's true. Yeah, five not... possibly dead children, I guess, but they might be alive. What now? Hope springs eternal. You. 
you might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So because of timing, we're actually going to move, I'm sorry, but uh, our New Year's predictions round up to next week because we've got several juicy pages of roundup of predictions to get through. Yeah, we literally just don't have time to talk about it right well, now. Well, we do, but it'll be a very long episode. And, you know, this is always fun to talk about uh, Nostradamus and the asparagus lady. So we got we to gotta really devote the respect and time it deserves. I can't wait to hear this year's piss predictions. There's no piss involved, Sean. Do you say asparagus lady? I say piss. <laughs> tomato, tomato. Oh, that's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on those top couple of Patreon tiers. We call you our spooky family, but uh, I would assume your families call you. (laughs) Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, Pete, Anna, and Delaney. We love you all very much. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McKay. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network.